Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hello, Roger. Welcome to the show. Andrea, hi. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciated it. And as you know, Roger, we I've recently read your book, one of your books, Life is a Pitch, which I enjoyed very much because it's very much connected to what we do at Ideas on Stage. And as I told you, I liked it both because of the content, but also because of the way it was presented. It's two books in one and it's it's an interesting and original concept. And I would like to start with just a curiosity because I'm Italian and at the beginning of your book, I saw that you and your co-author dedicated the book to Niccolò Machiavelli. Uh, and so just out of curiosity, why, why did you dedicate it to Niccolò Machiavelli? Well, there are many great Italians, Ferrari, Leonardo da Vinci, but actually of all of them, I think Machiavelli is the one who gets very bad press for no good reason. The word Machiavellian has become to sort of mean a bit dodgy, rather corrupt. In fact, you're quite surprised to discover that Machiavelli isn't a Tory backbencher. Um, but actually, if you read his masterpiece, The Prince, which was written 500 years ago, it's actually an incredibly insightful book about how you run things and how you get people on board with your ideas. So in a way, he was a great pitcher. And the book is incredibly astute in knowing how you should make things happen. Um, and focus is a very overused word in business. But I think Machiavelli was the first person who really identified the idea that you've got to stay focused on your objective the whole time if, you've got to, if you're going to achieve what you want. So notwithstanding the fact he's not terribly popular, he's certainly popular with me, and I think it's a great book. Yeah, great. And, and so, Roger, let's talk about why life is a pitch. One of the interesting things about your book is that I, I bought it and I was expecting something which I find all the time in a lot of books, let's say, because I'm a presentation coach, mm. then there are a lot of presentation skills, books, but your book is much more than that. It's not just about pitching. It's it's not just about business. It's about life as well. Mm. And you do talk about why life is a pitch and why the way you pitch your ideas, the way you pitch yourself can have a big impact in life in general. So could you speak to that? Why, why do you think that life is a pitch? Well, it's very simple. Most of what you do in your life doesn't move things forward at all. You know, you commute to the office, you do the washing up, you cook dinner, you attend meetings. Uh, all of those things have to be done. If you don't cook dinner, you'll die of starvation. But having dinner doesn't actually advance your life and most of what you do at work doesn't advance your life it just keeps things moving the things which make a step change in what's happening to you are when you pitch 
If you propose marriage, that's a kind of pitch. That certainly changes your life. If you apply for a job and you get it, that changes your life. If you're in the job and you want more responsibility or a bigger budget for your department or to hire new people, those things you have to pitch for and they all advance your life. So the things in your life which change is a small minority of the total of your activity, but it's always a pitch. And do you have a, and by the way, Roger, if any of my questions lead nowhere, just let me know. I've got, by the way, I've got, as I told you before, I've got so many questions here and let's see how much we are able to cover. Sure. And in terms of, if we think about the context of pitching for in business, as you said, it could be an idea, it could be a project, maybe you want to sell something, a product, a service, a project, you want, maybe you want to sell yourself. In your experience, do you follow a process, kind of step-by-step -step process for you to be able to prepare a successful pitch? Uh, yeah, I think you do. Uh, and... It sounds very prosaic and rather dull that you have to have a kind of structured way of thinking about it. And almost, if it sounds as if it's almost anti-imaginative. But actually, I think if you don't think about it in an organized way, you won't end up with a good pitch. Um, you know, that old joke that spontaneous parties are the ones which take most pre-planning. There's a real truth in that. And for me, the key for a pitch is not actually what color background the bloody PowerPoint slides are. People waste an enormous amount of time on the trivia around the edges. The key thing, is there a strong, simple idea that the person you're pitching to is going to take away from that and say, this is why I'm going to lend Andrea the money to start his business, or this is why I'm going to give Andrea the advertising account or whatever it may be. What you need to define at the beginning is an understanding of the problem and then one strong, simple idea which will solve it. If you get that right, everything else follows. And Roger, you mentioned a couple of things now that I'd like to, to cover. One is you said you need to have a strong and simple idea. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about that in the book. You say that you need to be able to simplify your message to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that we always try and do with, with our clients as well. And I don't know about you, but one of the questions I get asked all the time, every time I talk about the idea of simplify your message yeah. is that, okay, let's simplify the message, but then there has to be a line, a lot of people tell me between keeping it simple, but not making it too simple. Simplicity versus simplistic. So in your view, in your experience, if, if such a thing exists, but how do you go about simplifying a message so that the audience understands it, but you don't make it too simple, simplistic? Uh, I go back to Machiavelli and his obsession with focusing on the ultimate objective that you want. Um, and I'll give you I, what I think is quite a good example of a simple idea. Um, and I agree with the implication of your question. Simple is not the same as simplistic at all. They may share a syllable, but they don't share anything else. Um, a long time ago, I was a partner in an advertising agency. We were approached by one of the biggest brewers in Britain. And at that time, 
people were moving from beer to lager. All of the big brewers were coming out with lagers, which were always called Lowenbrau or Heldenbrau or Lowenstein. It was like there were three or four German syllables that you could perm in any combination because the belief was that the best beer came from Bavaria and therefore all, all lagers should kind of either be that or pretend to be that. So our brief was to invent a new traditional Bavarian lager to compete with all of these other Brauenstein and Steinenbraus. And we sat down and we thought about it and we thought actually, deep down in our hearts, we didn't really believe that drinkers cared very much about whether a lager was the best quality or had the best hops or the best brewing tradition. It seemed to us that what drinking was about is being with your mates. It's not about the beer, it's about the people that you're drinking with. And so when the client came back to see us with our idea, we, we said, well, we've thought hard about this and the, kind, the part of Bavaria that we would like to concentrate on is the part known as Australia. Because actually, everybody may think that the best beer comes from Germany, but they think the best drinkers come from Australia. If you think of an Australian bar, you don't imagine that many people are sober by midnight. And so we said, what you need is to recognize that. And so actually what people want to do is they don't want to identify with the quality of the product, they want to identify with the kind of person who drinks it. So we persuaded them to launch Foster's Lager on draft in the UK, which became a huge success. But it was at the heart of it, it was a very simple idea that people don't want good beer the way they might want good wine. They want good mates. And that's what Australia is best at. Unless... And I love the example. Thanks, thanks, Roger, for sharing that. Unless you are like me, and I do, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big craft beer fan. And for me, it is about the beer. It's not about the mates. But, but sure. absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, but this was a generation ago. Yeah. And of course, each success in marketing spawns a new curiosity for what the next thing is going to be. And your preference is an example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would also like to go back to another thing you mentioned before, which is the problem. You say you, it's imp and you talk about in the book as well. You, it's important to start with the problem because and I'm just it, these are not your words. It's, it's my words. But basically, nobody cares about your solution unless it is clear first, okay, what's the problem is, let's go deep into the problem. And then once we do that, then it makes sense to reveal our, our solution and how that addresses that specific problem or challenge or need that the audience may have. Could you speak to that, the, the importance of starting with a problem? Well, my experience of when people are working on a pitch, and I noticed it very strongly when I became chairman of a PR group, which was pitching the whole time for projects. And they had a kind of standard procedure where the first three slides of a PowerPoint, there was always one showing what good clients the company had. There was one, a graph going up showing how successful they were. And there was a map of the world showing that they, if you wanted an office in Singapore or Sydney, they had one. 
And I said to them, you know, when you go to the doctor, he doesn't say, let me start by telling you that I uh, studied medicine at Edinburgh University, and then I did a master's in microbiology at King's College London. He doesn't tell you his qualifications. He starts by saying, what are your symptoms? How long have you had them? Can you describe it in what kind of pain? Is it consistent or is it erratic? He's immediately talking to you about what it is that is bugging you. And as soon as he does that, you think, actually, this person is on my side. He's on my wavelength. And I think we should treat, in business, we should treat clients exactly the same. You've got to start off by identifying what it is that, what their commercial problem is. And there are two reasons for doing that. One is actually, since you're paid to solve the problem, you might as well find out what it is. And secondly, it wins their respect. It gets you on side. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you are bringing up these analogies and anecdotes because one of the main reasons, it's not the only one, of course, but one of the main reasons why I really enjoyed your book is because it's, full, which by the way, I recommend to our listeners, it's, it's full of analogies and anecdotes and stories which make, it, which make your points interesting, relatable and memorable as well. And also, Roger, let's talk about the difference between communicating and pitching just information and pitching something or having an objective when pitching an idea that goes beyond just sharing information. You, you mentioned this in the book, you say that a pitch is, is more than just information. You talk about the importance of emotions and you say why emotions are more powerful than just logic and statistics. And could you, could you explain that for, for our listeners? Why is that the case? Why even in business, emotions should play an important role in a pitch? Well, a pitch really is not a transfer of information. People think it is, but they're wrong. What it is, is a transfer of power. If you're interviewing me for a job, effectively, you've got the power to offer that to me or not. And what I want to do is to kind of magnetize that power from you to me. So simply telling you a lot of information is very unlikely to achieve that. What I need to do is to say things or behave in a way which makes you feel, I really want this guy on our team. Things are going to be better with him. It's going to be different. And that is partly to do with logic, of course. Um, but it's, it's also, but I think it's more to do with emotion. And I have a very good example of that. I saw a CV a while ago of a guy who just left university. Uh, he had a first in filmmaking and he wanted a job as a filmmaker. Um, and he'd written a CV and the temptation would be to boast about his degree and say, you know, I've got a first in filmmaking at a good university. This is the fact which should encourage you to want me. Um, he completely ignored that because he figured that actually 
a real filmmaker wouldn't give much of a stuff, frankly, what his degree was. Uh, and the CV just said, I've got no knowledge or experience of this subject whatsoever, but I will work very hard for very little money and I make a blinding cup of tea. Now, any employer reading that is going to kind of fall in love with this guy because he knows he's honest about the fact that he's a beginner and he can offer virtually nothing in terms of knowledge or experience. But what he can offer is passion and enthusiasm and a willingness to work hard. Um, and that was a while ago, but that guy is now a successful film director. It worked. And, uh, and also there is another story that you included in, in your book, because now you mentioned the idea of transferring power. A pitch is a transfer mm -hmm. of power. And you included the story, your own story, where you had to pitch for the Mauritius tourist offices advertising, if, if I remember well. And I think their story, if I remember well, Roger, if not, feel free to just let me know. Their story also illustrates the idea of transferring power in a pitch. Yeah, well, what, what happened was we were asked to pitch for the Mauritius Tourist Office, which uh, I was slightly sceptical about because it's a very small budget. But my two partners said, no, we must go for it. If we win it, it could give us the chance to do really sexy advertising, which is a very good shop window for our advertising agency as well as for their tourism. And so we worked very hard on the pitch, unpaid, as is usually the case, for quite a few weeks in competition with a number of other agencies. And on the day that they were due to arrive at two o'clock, two o'clock came and went and 2.30 and 2.45. And we moved from being puzzled to bad tempered. At three o'clock, we rang them and they said, ah, oh, we're behind schedule. Uh, we've been seeing lots of advertising agencies all day. We can't come round to you. We're too busy. If you want to share your stuff, come round to us. So we did that feeling that we'd been treated in a slightly dismissive way. And when we got there, I started to unpack the stuff. We had lots of slides and blah, blah, blah. And the main man from Mauritius saw this and realized he was in for a long meeting. So he said, oh God, don't worry about all that stuff. You're the seventh advertising agency we've seen today. We know all about the sales figures and so forth. Just put the adverts on the table and we could be done in 10 minutes. And... I lost my temper. Fortunately, I lost it in a calm way rather than in a shouty way. So I just started to put all the stuff back in the bags and I gave him my card and I said, you're obviously too busy to see our presentation today, but here's my phone number. The next time you're over from Mauritius, give us a call and we will book an hour or two to talk to you. Um, and he said, all right, you can have 20 minutes. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not negotiating. We've done this work for you for nothing. If you want to see it, you see it on our terms. That's the deal. So, well, how long do you need? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. We need from the start till the finish. And we left. And this story proves that there must be a God because we waited on the pavement for a taxi for absolutely ages, even though it was in the middle of the West End. And while we were waiting and a taxi didn't come, a flunky appeared from the office rather breathlessly and said, they've had a bit of a chat and they're willing to let you have as long as you want. Will you come back? So we did. And I, we did the presentation. And the next morning I'm sitting in my office thinking, 
Well, we wouldn't have got that account, that's for sure. At which point the main man walks in completely unannounced, sits himself opposite me and says, I've come to tell you that you've got the advertising account for the Mauritius tourist office. And I was kind of surprised. And he said, the reason you got it is not because of the ads, which were terrible. And I said, I agree. I didn't think they were good either. And he said, the reason you got it is that we're a kind of small country in a hot climate. If by lunchtime we haven't solved the problem, the temptation to go and have a beer on the beach in the afternoon instead of carrying on working is sometimes rather strong. But we can't be like that because tourism is the main strand of our economy. And actually, we need strong partners. And your ads may not be good, but your self-belief is good. You stood up to us and you wouldn't be messed around and you behaved in a very professional way. We admired that. So we're giving you the project and we hope you can do some good ads for us now. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> if I hadn't lost my temper with him and walked out, we might never have got the business. Yeah, and that's that's a great story. I loved it, and thanks for sharing it. And I, I think he also says something about the the role of confidence when when pitching. You were confident; otherwise, you wouldn't have done that. And from this perspective, in your experience, Roger, where does that come from? If you think about confidence when it comes to pitching, communicating an idea, where does confidence come from, in your view? Uh, God, that's a huge question. Uh, I'm not sure there's a, a perfect answer to it, but it's certainly an incredibly important ingredient. And it always struck me as weird when I was in advertising. If you pitch for a, an advertising account, typically against three or four other agencies, you produce your creative ideas. And if you're the winning agency, the phone rings and you say, hello, and it's the client. And he says, congratulations, you've got our advertising account. And he said, that's great. And then there's a pause and he says, now the first thing we must do is to sit down and work out some proper ads because we thought the ones you showed us weren't very good. And I couldn't understand why you always had to redo the advertisements when you'd won the pitch. Because surely that's what decided it. And then one day it dawned on me, of course, the client doesn't seriously expect you to get the ads right first time when you have no relationship with him. He's not really asking you to do creative work because he thinks he's going to be running it. He's asking you to do creative work because it's a test of how you behave. And actually what's on trial is not the advertisements, it's you. And he's giving you a kind of exercise because he doesn't want confidence in the advertising. He wants confidence in the guys running the advertising agency. It's the people in front of him that he's investing in. Because if he doesn't like the ads on Monday, he can ask for some by next Monday, but you won't change. So he's buying you, not your advertisements. Yeah. So the confidence in the individual is absolutely at the heart of a successful pitch. How you radiate that confidence is a very big question, because if you don't instinctively feel it, you've kind of got to you've got to convince yourself that you do really it's an act of salesmanship upon yourself because if you go in feeling i'm not quite sure about this that will radiate and they won't buy it and they won't buy you yeah and and there was very much connected to to this idea of of confidence roger there was one thing in your book that i found interesting 
and it made me think and you said and i have it here in my notes you say that revealing your weaknesses is better than revealing your strengths when it comes to like showing confidence revealing your weaknesses can be better than revealing your strengths could you speak to that yeah i think that if you're dealing with somebody who tells you everything's going to be all right, this can't go wrong, as soon as they say that, you know that you're dealing with a bullshitter and you don't trust him. If you're dealing with somebody who's quite honest and somebody says, it looks as if this TV commercial will be terrific, but very expensive to make, um, then, and you say, yeah, it will, but so it's a gamble, but I think it's the right gamble, then people will trust you. People aren't looking for some sort of slick salesman who promises the earth. They're looking for somebody who's professional and believable. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, Roger, I would like to go back to something else that we, at the very beginning of our conversation, we started talking about it, but I would like to go back to it. And... It's the importance of content, the content of your pitch versus the way you deliver your content. Now, I don't know what you think about it. So please do let me know what you think, even if you think differently than I do. Now, when it comes to content versus delivery, a lot of people think as soon as we start thinking about, let's say, presentation skills, pitching skills in general, a lot of people immediately start thinking about the way you deliver your content, your message. So they look at things like body language and gestures and eye contact. And I think that these are, they can be important things to consider if you really want to get it right, but it's not the main thing. I believe that from a communication perspective, the most important thing is your message, is your idea. It's your content. If you don't have that right, then it doesn't matter how good you are from a delivery perspective. So that's how I look at it. What's your view, Roger, if you think about content versus delivery? Well, kind of you want both, obviously. You know, if, if, if you had to have your appendix out and the doctor said, I can arrange for you to have a very good surgeon or a very good anaesthetist, which would you want? I think you'd say, actually, I'd like both, please. <laughs> So I think you've got to get content and delivery right. But if you ask me which is the more important, without doubt, it's the content. Because if the delivery isn't perfect, but the, the central idea is strong, a, a good audience will get that and will buy into it. If the content's good, they'll buy it, even if the delivery isn't stunning. But if the content isn't quite there, however slick the delivery is, people will, will see the flaw. And in a funny way, the better the, the delivery is, the more you risk looking like a kind of slick salesman that's insubstantial. You know, you draw attention to the lack of content. So getting the content right is an essential. Getting the delivery right is a very desirable luxury. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Now, Roger, we, we've talked about content. Let's let's change subject a little bit. And in your book, you, you also talk about the importance of being in the right space 
for example, in the preparation of a pitch, you need to generate and come up with interesting ideas that then you can include in the content of your pitch. And you say that it is important to consider where you, where you do that, even the physical space. And I have it here in quotes, you say that unusual thinking doesn't happen when you are in a, in a usual space. So you must find a new space to do that kind of activity. Could you tell us more about, about this? Yeah, I, I just think that if you have got a difficult thing to solve, it needs some kind of lateral leap. And you walk into your normal grey office and you sit at your normal grey workstation and switch on your normal grey laptop, it's quite likely that you're going to have a normal grey thought. You're not going to make a great leap. And there's a silly but true story in the book of a, an ad man called Terry Lovelock, who a long time ago was uh, working for an advertising agency which had been asked to launch uh, a product which had nothing to differentiate it from any of its rivals other than the advertising idea. And Terry was extravagant and a maverick, even by advertising standards. And the next thing you knew, he'd gone off to Morocco for a fortnight and had checked into the Marrakech, uh, the Mamoumia, which is the most expensive hotel in Marrakesh, and just left a message saying, I can't think of a decent idea in the office, so I've got somewhere to get some headspace. Of course, everybody was very pissed off. You know, they were still sitting in their rather dull office in a tower block on the wrong side of the Euston Road. Why was Terry sitting by the pool in Morocco? And when he came back, they said, well, what have you got to show for it? And he produced out of his pocket this rather scrappy piece of paper on which were written eight words. And those words were Heineken refreshes the parts other beers can't reach. And it was a breakthrough idea. And it produced an advertising campaign which ran for 25 years and made Heineken a huge brand. So... I think Terry's extravagance was justified. Now, obviously, it's a most extreme example. I'm not suggesting we should all fly off to Morocco. But when I worked uh, with Terence Conran, for example, his office was uh, near Tower Bridge, about 200 yards walk from the river. And if I just got stuck on something, I'd just go for a walk and get a cup of coffee and I'd sit on one of the benches overlooking the river. And I'm kind of away from work and away from the phone and your head clears and quite often you think about things which have nothing to do with the problem that you're trying to address but you still kind of create the opportunity for new ideas to come into your head yeah um, the 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 environment is important and also connected to this it's not the same thing but for example roger one of the things we say to our clients is that you should never start preparing a pitch or a presentation on PowerPoint in front of your laptop. Oh, and never, quite right. Never. <laughs> and it's not the same thing, but it is connected because it's the environment. You want to start brainstorming interesting ideas. And John Cleese said that we don't know where we get our ideas from, but what we do know is that we don't get them from our laptops. And I agree with that 100%. Now, Roger, talking about, again, brainstorming, coming up with interesting ideas that we can include in the content of a pitch, there is something that you mentioned in the book that I would love to, to hear your experience here because in my experience, I find it slightly different because you say that when it comes to brainstorming ideas, 
you should never do that kind of activity in more than two people. It should be you and somebody else. And, and I think that brainstorming in two people is great, but I also find that doing that kind of brainstorming activity can, can work really well if you have a small group of say three to four, five people, not more than that, because otherwise I agree with you that the larger the group, the, the less productive that brainstorming session is. But to me, it doesn't have to be two. In the book, you talk, you talk about having two people. Could you, could you speak to that? What, what do you think? Well, we've agreed on virtually everything so far, so it's about time that we had a good fight over something. <laughs> I, um, I think the, the reason that people go on brainstorming, and it's interesting you sort of draw the line at four or five, you know, large corporations tend to send people off in groups of eight or ten to a country house hotel for the day. That's the sort of brainstorm I really think is quite wrong. Because what happens is subconsciously, consciously you're trying to solve the problem, but subconsciously what you're thinking is, if I don't, Andrea will. And if he doesn't, Bill will. Because the responsibility is shared, it's diluted. And actually to produce a good idea, your adrenaline needs to be charging through you like an express train through a tunnel. And that won't happen in a large group. As I say, because it's shared. So I think you need one person on their own is good. If the personal chemistry is good, two people together can be very good. More than that, I'm very skeptical of. Um, but I'm not stopping you doing it your way. There's a very interesting Frenchman called Max Ringelman who did a lot of research uh, years ago into group behavior. And basically what he's discovered, which is actually what you know from common sense looking at people in the office, is that the more people you put on a project, the less productive each individual one becomes. So there is a kind of science to it as well as my own instinct. But for yeah. me, I'd have a very small group, one's good, two's good, more than that starts to be moving towards a committee. Yeah, yeah. And there is another phenomenon that, that I've experienced, which is maybe opposite, but then the end result is, is not great either. And when you do a brainstorming session with more than, in my experience, say three, four, five people at most, then what happens is, that everybody needs to say something and everybody needs to to add something even if that comment doesn't really add value to the conversation you are having yeah. but everybody needs to say something and it makes it just for like if, if we look at the math and how how much time you have if you've got a couple of hours for example then it makes it impossible to make it productive no, I think you're right. People feel they have to justify their presence by making a contribution, even if they haven't got a contribution to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is something else, Roger, which I'm not sure I agree with, <laughs> which I <Ooh>. read <laughs> in your book. And, and But it might be that it's just the way we look at it, which is this. Now, in, in somewhere in the book, you talk about, you introduce these if you want like kind of communication technique that which is now called people refer to it as 
tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you've just told them. And and I would love to to hear what you think about this approach in terms of the way you structure your pitch. Why? Because I think that if by that we mean that, for example, you could structure your pitch by telling the audience at the beginning of your presentation the key things you want to cover, then you tell them the key points you wanted to, to address, and then at the end you summarize. Mm. So if that's what we are talking about in terms of the structure, I agree. I think it works really well. By the way, also because the summary repetition is important in communication. However, I don't know what you think, Roger, but I've seen this technique being overused and also in a manipulative way sometimes. Like tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you've just told them. I don't know whether my question makes sense, but what are your thoughts around this? Well, I think, um, I do think it's important to have structure. Um, and when you say that to people, they nod in that way that people nod when they think they ought to agree, but they don't actually quite understand, but they don't like to say so. <clears throat> and those people go off and write presentations which have lots of information and lots of ideas, but it doesn't have one clear train of thought that at the end of it, you can say, I know what they're saying. You, at the end of it, all you'll feel is they've told me a lot of stuff. And that's why you need structure. It needs to be organized in a way that makes it digestible. But that said, I think a presentation needs to be a dialogue and you need to involve the people on the other side of the table. If it feels like a lecture rather than a conversation, you're kind of doomed because yeah. just that isn't the relationship that people want. So yes, it needs to be structured, but it needs to be structured in a way that people feel woven into it rather than talked down to. And Jean-Luc Godard, the French film director, came out with a wonderful phrase about structure in movie making. He said, all films should have a beginning, a middle and an end, but not necessarily in that order, which is an interesting thought. So I think you do need to have a kind of shape to your argument, but it shouldn't be a shape which feels hectoring or predictable. If it's got an element of surprise and if it's got an element of involvement with the audience, it'll be a million times more effective. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, involvement with the audience, that's what helps you gain their attention, keep it high, which, by the way, I think it's even more important now because at the moment, so we are recording this episode on, what is it, the, the 8th of November, 2021. So... Still, things are gradually changing, but still most communication is happening online. And I think that when it comes to online communication, it's even harder to, to keep the audience's attention high. So if instead of one-way communication, like a monologue, you find ways to interact with the audience, that, that makes a big difference. And Roger, I also wanted to ask you something about communicating data because there is an interesting anecdote that you included in your book, the, the story of Sir Jerry Robinson, when he was 
asked to it was appointed by the government at the time to run the arts council so if you remember the story it would be great if you could share it with us why because i think it's a great example of how to communicate data in in an effective way could you could you please share sure. the story with us well, jerry who i knew well because i worked with him very closely for about 10 years had a very successful career in business and then uh, and made a lot of money and then the government of the day which was tony blair's government with gordon brown as his chancellor uh, were in power and they thought the arts council was filled with people who were much more interested in going to the ballet than worrying about the budget and if you had a kind of tough aggressive businessman chairing it there'd be a lot of waste that you could strip out and that money saved could go back to the public for other things, put in the health service, for example. And so they hired Jerry as chairman of the Arts Council to be a kind of ruthless bastard. And having worked with him, he's very capable of doing that. But when he worked with them for a bit, he started personally to feel very differently about it. And he thought, actually, the arts contributed quite a lot to the economy indirectly. Because, of course, if you have a successful arts culture in London with good theatre and good art galleries and so forth, you don't just sell tickets to those things. You sell aeroplane tickets and taxi cab fares and hotel bills and restaurants. You know, it contributes to the economy in a very significant way. And he also thought, the more he got into it, that the arts were kind of underrated, that they were, they were uplifting, they were inspiring, and, and you, you can't put a price on that. So he decided to go back and tell Blair and Brown that instead of cutting the budget, he wanted them to authorize an increase. Well, I cannot imagine a more difficult pitch, you know, going to your boss and saying, remember what you've asked me to do, I'm asking you to prove the exact opposite. Uh, but what he did was very smart. He didn't go with lots of statistics and data about how many people went to the opera or stuff like that. He just sat down with him and over a cup of tea said to Blair, look, Prime Minister, every civilised country funds its arts properly. Of course, Blair was a very vain and ambitious man. He'd worked really hard to be leader of the Labour Party. He'd worked really hard to win the election. He was now in charge of the country. He wants his country to be one of the top countries. And here's this guy saying to him, if you want to be a civilised country, you fund the arts properly. Does that mean... If I want to be equal with Barack Obama and Angela Merkel and those people, I fund the arts properly, fine. If that's a subscription for the club, I'm happy to pay it. And he then turned to Gordon Brown, who of course was the money man, and we all know finance director's main skill is stopping you doing things. And he said to Brown, look, we're talking about bugger all money, really. It's 200 million quid. It's barely the price of one F-11 jet. Now, of course, 200 million quid is quite a lot of money, even to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But put that way, one F-11 jet, how many jets does the Air Force have? I don't know, 400? If they had to get by on 399, would anybody notice one missing? I doubt it. So by putting it that way, he charmed them into doing it. So he got his money. But what was clever about it was that he hadn't focused on what was good about what he was doing and lots of facts and figures about that. 
He'd focused on what to Blair was important, which was the prestige of the country and the prestige that would radiate on Blair personally. And what he'd focused on with Brown was making him realize that the amount of money involved in the greater scheme of things wasn't that significant. Yeah, and he put his data into perspective, which is a very effective technique, communication technique when it comes to data. We need to be able to communicate data so that it means something to the audience. And like, for example, when Apple launched the very first iPod, when was it? Maybe 20 years ago, the capacity of that product was five gigabytes. Mm. But I don't know about you, Roger, but to me, I'm not a technical person. If you tell me five gigabytes, so what? It doesn't tell me anything. Mm. And so Apple said, look, five gigabytes is the equivalent of a thousand songs in your pocket. Because a thousand songs in your pocket is universal. It means the same sure. thing to everybody. So it's the same principle. 200 million pounds is the equivalent of, it's the cost of one F-11 jet. Mm. And... Uh, that's, that's useful. Now, Roger, let's also talk about briefly PowerPoint. There is one chapter in your book, The Tyranny of PowerPoint. So can you tell us more about this? Why, why yeah, I, do you I, think I, there is a tyranny? <laughs> uh, I'm a great fan of PowerPoint, actually. I, I think, um, but I'm also a great fan of red wine. And red wine used badly can cause car accidents and alcoholism and liver disease. So it's not that I'm against PowerPoint, I'm for it, but it's got to be used in the right way. And essentially the reason I'm against it is that not what's wrong with PowerPoint, but what's wrong with the way people use it. And because it makes it possible to have a slick looking presentation very simply, people concentrate on the kind of prettying up of the stuff rather than what the actual message is. Um, and it seems to me what you've got to get right is the basic message first. You know what your proposition is, then you decide how you're going to use PowerPoint to put that across. Um, and I absolutely encourage people never go anywhere near a laptop until you've really worked out what the story is that you're telling. And in my case, I don't do the draft the slides on my laptop. I have a big A2 pad and I just use a soft pencil and I sketch out the slides so I can look at them as a sequence telling the story, you know, almost like a strip cartoon. When I've got that worked out, that's the first time I allow myself to switch on the PowerPoint program because by then I'm dominating the PowerPoint because I know what I want it to say for me rather than it dominating me. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. And uh, look, Roger, we, from that perspective, we agree a hundred percent. We follow exactly the same process and you're right. We should use that tool as something that can amplify a message that can reinforce and support a message, not as something that replicates what we are saying, which is often what we see, because cool. even people can't read a listen at the same time. Yeah. Well, and the I, is I, that, that, yeah. that they read faster than they listen. So yeah. while you're talking, they already know what you're saying. I, I got a job once for the Finnish government who did a, a scheme where they gave training in pitching 
to small businesses to help them grow and to build their export drive. And I came to Helsinki to talk to 50 small businesses and they each had to do a very short presentation to me. And I was supposed to make a comment on each one, but actually 49 of them were absolutely dreadful. There was one guy who, was, who really got it. He didn't need any help from me. In fact, put it the other way around. He should be telling me how to do it. But the others were all awful. And the reason they were awful is they all, it was like they typed their school essay and put it on the screen and then read it out. So the PowerPoint wasn't really telling a story. And I felt I couldn't criticize them all because it would be hurtful and it would take too long. So what I did was I said to them, if you thought my presentation was better than yours or different from yours, what you should know is a couple of simple statistics. Firstly, I had one slide per three seconds in my presentation. You on average had one slide per 48 seconds. So with me, they happen really quite quickly. With you, you're staring at them for ages. Secondly, 61% of mine were, I probably made up all these figures actually, but nobody knew, so who cares? I said 61% didn't have words, they just had pictures. And the ones which had words had typically an average of nine words. So it was like a headline in a newspaper. So it had visual impact. You guys had a great wall of prose. And that, I think, is what you have to escape from. Yeah, because it, you mentioned science before. And to me, Roger, a great pitch, a great presentation is a mix of art and science as well. If we look at how brain works, the written text is processed in exactly the same part of the brain that processes the spoken text. Mm. And so that's why people can't read and listen at the same time. Reading and listening are two conflicting activities for a brain and that's why our ability to amplify a message using a presentation tool like powerpoint but it could be any other presentation tool it doesn't make any difference that's why that can be useful and i said okay let's talk about let's move away from the content but something else came came to my mind now roger i would like to ask you because in your book you say that it is useful to summarize, to include a summary in your pitch. But one of the things I found interesting, and I have it here, I have it in quotes, you say that when you are summarizing, you are summarizing the argument, not the supporting facts. Could you, could you tell us more about this? You are summarizing the argument, not the supporting facts. Well, a summary can be helpful, obviously. Although, in a way, the better the presentation is, the shorter and the simpler the summary can be. Because really, at the end of the presentation, you want to leave people clear what you're saying. So the very fact that you have a summary at all, to some extent, is an admission of defeat. But I think at the end of a long presentation, it can be helpful just to crystallize the idea. But I think that's all it is. You don't want to repeat a whole lot of information which people have already had. What you want to repeat is how you've understood that information to create an idea which will solve their problem. Yeah. If they want statistics, they can get a telephone directory. 
<laughs> yeah, so you want to keep it brief and short. And as we approach the conclusion, Roger, of our conversation, let's move to another key area that we that we mentioned at the very beginning, your, your delivery skills. Uh, and I think that when it comes to our ability to deliver a pitch in a way that's comfortable and convincing, rehearsal is is important and and please let me know what you think from based on your experience but if you also think that rehearsal is important do you have any either best practices or suggestions or for example how many times should we rehearse a like before an important page if there is maybe a minimum number that you would recommend well, although I said before, delivery is not as important as content, and I stand by that, I also said, nonetheless, delivery is still very important. So you have to get it right. And I wouldn't say that the way I do it is necessarily right for other people. But all I can say is for myself, when I rehearse in front of my colleagues, so I was at an advertising agency uh, pitching for an account, uh, if I rehearse the presentation in front of my own team, I just feel so embarrassed. I couldn't behave normally. It was ridiculous. So what I would do with them is I would simply go through. I wouldn't present it. I'd just show them the stuff and get their reaction entirely to the content. And that can be very helpful. And I then, once we got that right, I would rehearse on my own. So I'd close the door and lock it. And... I would present to an imaginary audience and I just go through it again and again. And I made myself a rule that if I made a mistake on the 25th minute of a 26 minute presentation, in my rehearsal, I go back to the beginning and start from the beginning every time. And the result of that is that you get the beginning absolutely perfect. And actually, if you start a pitch and it flows very well at the beginning, your confidence rises, the audience sense that. And after that, you're in a position where you actually might go off at a tangent and do, do things quite differently because you've kind of established a bridgehead between you and the audience. But those opening few slides are, or few words are really, really important. So I rehearse them with a kind of almost fanatic degree of obsession. And I don't apologize for that. Yeah. And I, I do the same for the introduction but also for the conclusion whereas mm -hmm. the the part in the middle i remain more flexible there yeah and you said in your book that rehearsing in front of your colleagues will make you confident about the content mm -hmm. i think i think that's what you've just described now right? whereas rehearsing on your own will make you confident about your delivery yeah right i think the reason you have to rehearse on your own for delivery is you've got to be willing to make mistakes go back, try again, make the same mistake again, go back and get it right the third time. And doing that in front of people that you're working with is kind of embarrassing. So it's much better to do it in front of the wallpaper. <laughs> yeah, and Roger, before we, we conclude, and I want to ask you about a new book that's, that's coming up. But before we do that, if you think about everything we've discussed, so life is a page, 
and pitching, presentation skills, content, visual delivery. We've covered many things today. In addition to your own books, in addition to Life is a Pitch, which is, some, which is a book I recommend to all our listeners, do you have any other book recommendations or maybe just one in particular that you think could be useful for our listeners when it comes to being able to pitch our ideas and ourselves in, in an effective way? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got strong views on that. I think most business books are either written by people who've got quite a lot of knowledge about business, but as a writer would make a very good bookend. They just can't put prose together, so it's not pleasurable to read. Or they're written by people who are good writers, but actually don't know much about business. So for me, I, virtually every business book I'd ever read, I would put firmly in the bin. There are two books I would recommend if you want to kind of expand your mind about business. One, I'll go back to where we began. I would recommend everybody read The Prince by Machiavelli. It's very difficult prose to get through. It's not an easy read, um, but the content is fantastic. His way of thinking about how you handle people is absolutely genius. And the other book I'd recommend is any book which is nothing to do with what you're trying to do, because I think people at work spend far too much time worrying about their work. And when I was running my advertising agency, if people were struggling to find an idea, I'd say, for God's sake, take the afternoon off and go to the cinema or go for a long walk in the park. Do something which is quite different and refresh your mind. So I'd encourage people to read a thriller or a good book by Graham Greene or Kurt Vonnegut. Don't feel that you're going to don't narrow your mind down, widen it out by reading something which has nothing to do with the problem that you're trying to solve. And in a funny way, it'll be much more helpful. I love it. Great, great piece of advice. And, and you have a, a book coming up this week, right, Roger? Any, it any is, book? it is. Uh, could you tell us, a little, it might not be, if I understood well, might not be connected to what we talked about today, but by all means, please tell us what, what you have coming up. Well, very early in my advertising career, I met an extraordinary designer come businessman, come restaurateur, come brilliant and also quite difficult individual called Terence Conran. And I handled his advertising on and off over most of my career. And I ended up as his chief executive for the final office job in my life. So I know him very well. and. A friend of mine called Stephen Bailey, who set up the Design Museum with Terence Conrad, also knows him very well. We decided, and sadly he died about a year ago, we decided he deserved a book about him. So it's about him and his achievement, but it's also, I think, there's a bigger idea than one person. I think it's about the idea that people who are incredibly high achievers, which he certainly was, are usually difficult, unhappy people. You know, if you're happy and satisfied, you're not going to start late at night trying to find some big new idea. You're happy with the existing ideas in the world. So I think there's an almost inevitable link between genius and kind of internal pain, really. And in a way, the book is a sort of love letter to that idea. And the title is Terence, the man it's, who invented design. Terence, the man who invented design. Clearly, of course, he didn't invent design. Design's been with us, you know, when people 
put the stones in place for Stonehenge. There was a design. Uh, but I think what Terence did was he kind of made it, you know, before Terence, a wine glass was something you drank out of. Now it was something that you could enjoy as a beautiful object and still drink wine out of it. He kind of elevated the importance of design and made people sensitive to it. As, he made the aesthetic more important part of our lives. And I think that's a huge and extraordinary achievement. Yeah. And by the way, for our listeners, even your book, the other book, Life is a Pitch, one of the reasons why I said at the beginning that I liked it, not just because of the content, but also because of the way it is presented. It's also because you've got two books in one and the second book by uh, Stephen Bailey, your co-author, is all about design as well. So it's not just, today we focus on the pitching side of things, sure. but it, it's broader than that. And perfect. Roger, thank you very much. Before we close, is there um, anything else? If people want to connect with you, where, where do they find you? Um, if you go to Roger, the glib answer is usually in the bar of the Groucho Club. But a more pragmatic answer is if you go to my website, which rather predictably is rogermavity.com. Uh, it's got my email address and I'd be happy to deal with any emails that anybody's got. If we've got five seconds before we go, I'd just like to go back to one question you asked about, which I was reflecting on, which was you asked about my point that actually it's often more compelling to admit mistakes than to pretend that everything's perfect. And I think there's a very good example of that happening around us right now because if there is one brand in Britain which is in terrible trouble, it's politics. And people don't trust politicians anymore. Um, you know, I was talking to my son the other day who's very, very interested in politics and very motivated by it. And he said, actually, I'm not gonna bother to vote at the next election because they're all hopeless and I've given up. And it was so depressing to hear that. And I think one of the reasons why the currency of politics has become devalued is that when politicians talk to us on the radio or television, they assume that they have to pretend that everything is fantastic. Well, if you're running a complicated country with 66 million people, at any one time, some things are going to be fantastic and some things are going to be terrible. Um, and actually, the first time a politician says, yeah, we made a terrible cock up over that. We've got it wrong. That's why we've done a U-turn. I'm sorry we let everybody down. That person would go up 10 points in the polls, in my view. Because you mentioned that, and uh, maybe, maybe there is no answer, but do you think that there is somebody either in the UK or elsewhere in the world, uh, it doesn't have to be a political answer. From a communication perspective, somebody in politics that does that right by any chance in your view um no that's a simple no. <laughs> I, I do you know i wish there was i pray for them at night yeah, yeah. Uh, okay maybe that and... savior will appear but not yet <laughs> and roger is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners is there maybe a question you you wanted me to to ask and i didn't do it any, any final messages, anything else at all that you'd like to share with the audience today? No, I think we've covered it pretty fully. 
Okay. In spite of well, my cold, I've sneezed my way through the interview and survived. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> and Roger, thank you very much. Thank I'm, you very I'm much. humbled. I'm humbled of your presence and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And let's keep in touch and all the very best. And you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.